For those of you that were here last Sunday morning, I'm a familiar face at this point. Uh, if you were not here last week, uh, my name is Richard Parker, as it states uh, in the bulletin. Our families, the Parkers and the Bronze, have been uh, joined at the hip, as it were, for uh, decades. And so it's through knowing the, the Braun family that uh, Adam reached out and asked if I could come for a couple of Sundays and uh, bring the Word of God to you all, even as you're in the midst of prayerfully seeking the Lord about uh, the pastor he has uh, for you in this uh, local congregation. I mentioned that I'm still serving as a pastor at our church in Gainesville, uh, I think I said last week that I'm on staff half-time. I'm not quite sure what that means, but anyway, I'm still on I just know the pay is half-time, <laughs> not that much. But um, <clears throat> uh, I do have the, the freedom, though, to kind of come and go a little bit uh, since I'm not on full-time staff, and I have a, a younger associate who became senior pastor and who's leading us uh, supremely, supremely well. But, you know, when you get to be uh, my age, and I don't mind... Uh, letting people know my age. In about two weeks, I'll be 75. 75 sounds one way. Three-quarters of a century has a different ring to it, you know? And there's certain challenges, like when you go to the drugstore, why is it almost everything in my basket has the word relief on it? I, you know, it's one of those kind of seasons of life. But I don't think I've gotten to the stage like the one guy. He and his wife retired to one of these retirement communities, and they decided to have another couple that lived in the community over for dinner one night. And as dinner came to a close, uh, the hostess wife and the other wife went to the kitchen to prepare dessert, and the two men were at the table. And the host guy says to his friend, you know, we went to this great restaurant last week. He said it had really good food, the service was great, and the prices were really reasonable. And his visiting friend says, well, what was the name of the restaurant? He said, you know, it's uh, what's the name of that flower like you give to your sweetheart on Valentine's Day, and he said, a carnation? He said, no, no, no. And he said, like an orchid? No, the one with the thorns. He said, oh, a rose. He goes, that's it. Then he yells to the kitchen, hey, Rose, what was the name of that restaurant we went to last week? <laughs> I'm not at that stage yet, I don't think. I'm going to ask you a very conspicuous question. You may think it's odd. And the question is this, why are we here this morning? Why are we here? I trust that since this has been a Bible teaching church that you know the right answers to that question. But we're all human and there's always the capacity through repetition to sometimes fall into this rote behavior of doing something habitually and perhaps not always staying engaged with what is really at the heart of what we're about as we come together, as we do here this morning on this uh, Lord's Day. And I'm going to ask you to turn in the book of Hebrews to chapter 10. And before I read half dozen verses aloud to you, and I hope you will be following along. I want to give you kind of fly over Hebrews at 35,000 feet. It's hard sometimes to bring a message where you just parachute in on a text without at least giving some of the surrounding context to why the writer is writing the things that he is. 
And so just quickly, and if you have a study Bible, probably the first page of every book of the Bible has a few facts about who the author is, the time of the writing, the theme, and that sort of thing. So even if you glanced at that, that would help give you the context. But I would just remind us very briefly this morning, by the way of preamble, that the book is called Hebrews because the audience is mainly made up of Jewish Christians. These are Jewish people who embrace Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. And this is some decades after Jesus has already resurrected and returned to heaven. We don't know who the author is for sure of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Historically, traditionally, it was often thought to be the Apostle Paul, but really in the last hundred years, biblical scholars have really leaned towards others that I won't delve into that discussion. Uh, I'm not so concerned that we know exactly who wrote it as long as we remember that ultimately it's the Holy Spirit of God that caused the author to pen these words. So it's really a letter to those Hebrew Christians and to us that does come from the Lord through his inspired word. And the whole aim of the author of this book is to remind those Hebrew Christians of the superiority of Jesus Christ. And he methodically goes through, and if you've studied this, he shows that Jesus is superior to the angels, that Jesus is superior to Moses, that Jesus is superior to any high priest that ever served within Judaism and the temple. And so the superiority of Christ is his main topic. But apparently, as we will see in some verses we're going to look at, some of them along the way for various reasons that I will try and highlight with you began to drift away and they were attracted and drawn back towards Judaism and back toward the temple worship. And since the temple worship is still going on in Jerusalem, that lets us know that this had to be written before A.D. 70 because in A.D. 70 the Romans came through and destroyed the temple and carried off all the furnishings. And so he's writing to these uh, believers who are in danger of drifting away from the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can truly uh, cleanse them uh, of their sin. And he has been pointing out earlier in chapter 10 that Jesus is very unlike any priest who's ever served in the Jewish temple mainly because, as the writer says, those priests rotate year after year. They have to go through a cleansing of themselves. The great high priest would go behind that veil to the Holy of Holies once a year, representing the people on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus doesn't have to perpetually keep doing that. He made a sacrifice once for all. It never has to be repeated, and it was totally sufficient to cover the sins of his people. Having said that, We pick up in verse 19. I'll read through verse 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this small paragraph, there are two principles I want to lift from this text uh, to display before our hearts and minds this morning. And the first principle is that there is a cherished promise here, and there is also a costly negligence that is going on amongst these folks. And when he says, since therefore, as he begins the paragraph, he's reminding them and us that in verses 19 and 20, that we actually have a confidence to come into the presence of God to worship him. And as he says in verse 20, that the blood of Jesus has paved the way and that the veil that he's referring to is that if you look back in the um, book of Leviticus, you find a rather detailed description of this veil or this curtain that hung inside the temple behind which was the Ark of the Covenant and the area called the Holy of Holies, as I already stated, which was only entered once a year by the great high priest. But this curtain was incredibly lavish, brilliant colors, it was woven and was beautiful to look at. But something that was fashioned by human hands really was depicting human inability because what that veil represented was no entry. That is, the Holy of Holies was not accessible to the average worshiper because God is holy and it was the atonement year by year that covered their sin that got them to the next year, but they never were cleansed enough to step into the Holy of Holies except for that great high priest himself. And Jesus is called the great high priest because he is the one who is uh, interceding uh, for us. We have a great high priest over the house of God. And as he says earlier in Hebrews chapter 7, that intercession by Jesus on our behalf is perpetual. It is ongoing. When John is writing in 1 John And he says at the beginning of chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you, my children, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate for the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word in English, advocate, is really just one of the translations of that word parakletos or paraclete, the comforter, one who's called alongside the help, but was also used in the court of law to describe the person who stood in for you as your defense attorney, as it would be. And so we have this confidence to come into the presence of God. When we speak of the presence of the Lord, obviously we speak of it in two ways. One, as Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
So individually, we have we are in the presence of God. But also, as he's speaking of here, he's talking about corporately. When believers gather in corporate worship, we're coming into the very presence of God. And really, when you think about it, this is an extraordinary thing. God welcomes us to do this. In Psalm 95, I, I entitle that psalm the Psalm of Divine Invitation because a divine invitation has come to us. Three times the psalmist uses the word come. In Psalm 95.1, O come, let us sing with joy to the Lord. In verse 2, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. And then in verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And we take that invitation and we link that to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 when Jesus stated that an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father and spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Within Christianity, that is wholly unique. In most religions of the world, what we read in their religious texts is the ongoing efforts of man to somehow reach up to God. But in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible is the story of God reaching down to man. God is the one taking the initiative. The Father seeks those to be His worshipers. I'd like to make a grammatical observation with you about this text because I think it helps us to more fully understand it. So we have confidence to enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus through the veil. We have this great high priest who's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us uh, perpetually. Then in verse 22, we have the first of three let us. There's three times he says, let us, let us, let us. And the first one in verse 22 is let us draw near with sincere hearts and with washed bodies. But notice this about verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Nothing can give us a clear conscience before God. Even once we become His children, we're all aware of what Hebrews says in chapter 12, the sin that so easily entangles us, the sin that so easily trips us up. I once heard Pastor Chuck Swindoll say that he often observed that probably the most common emotion amongst Christians was guilt. Well, that shouldn't be the most common emotion amongst Christians, if he's correct in that. It shouldn't be guilt. Because one of the things that we do benefit from in knowing Christ as Savior and Lord is a cleansed conscience. I once heard it said, uh, there's no pillow so soft as a clean conscience. Well, he mentions conscience a couple of other times. In fact, if you just glance back over at Hebrews uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 9, uh, a 
Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He's talking about the sacrifices within Judaism in the temple. He says they don't make for a clean conscience. Drop down a few more verses, down to verse uh, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I'd like to illustrate this. Perhaps it's overly simplified, but I hope it helps drive home the truth of what we're speaking of here. Think of a young wife. She's just been married. All the wedding gifts, everything's still shiny and new. A few years go by. She has a couple of children with her husband. And their dining room table, which they've always taken pride in, as the years go by, the kids were drawing and went off the page and the marker got on the table. Somebody put something hot on the table without the hot pad and made a little part warp. Well, as time goes along, this table is looking pretty damaged. But when they had guests for dinner, no problem. She just put a tablecloth over it and everything looked beautiful. That's what the Day of Atonement was for the Jewish people. When he went into the Holy of Holies, that is the great high priest, and sprinkled that blood on the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, that was covering their sin. That was not cleansing their consciences. It was covering their sin. But if one day the husband takes that table in the garage, sands it down, removes all the imperfections, puts a new finish on it, and brings that table back in, it's not just that those mars and scratches and damages were covered. They've been removed, and it's a new table. And, and that's the difference between Jesus' sacrifice and what his blood accomplishes for us as opposed to what the animal sacrifices. And Hebrews makes that clear time and again, and we don't have time to look at all those cross-references. And so he says, uh, let us draw near uh, for a clear conscience, and then he says in verse 23, the third let us is let us hold fast without wavering. So what is the ground of our hope? The promise that he mentions in the next phrase, he who promised is faithful. Now he would not write hold on without wavering if there weren't some people who were wavering. And so he was addressing a very real problem that was emerging in that church. Where I really want to focus for the rest of our time this morning is actually verses 24 and 25. The final let us in verse 24. Now notice that here in verse 24 there's a change. Most everything he has said in verses 19 through 23 has been addressing the vertical our relationship and how we relate to God. Starting at verse 24, it becomes horizontal. He now addresses, let us relate to one another in a certain way. And I just read the verse, but I'll read it again. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And when he's inviting us to consider, he doesn't mean a casual quick glance. Uh, the word he happens to use there in that original language means to, to contemplate something 
with the aim of, of discerning. Uh, it denotes uh, an attentive, continuous care. Uh, one Greek scholar said that when he calls us to consider how, to consider how, that what he's saying is take careful note of each other's spiritual welfare. Because the way he describes it is consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Some of you may have a translation that says provoke one another to good deeds. In fact, I was curious about this particular word because this is what we're supposed to be part of what we're supposed to be doing with each other. So when he says stimulate or provoke, I looked up a half a dozen, dozen other English translations. And this is what we find. And all of these are legitimate ways to translate that little phrase. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how each of us may best arouse the others around us. Think of ways to encourage one another to outbursts of love. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. And the Living Bible, which is not a translation, it's a paraphrase, but the Living Bible very practically says, in response to all he has done for us, let us outdo each other in love and good deeds. And love in the biblical sense, of course, is never the syrupy, mushy, sentimental love, but it's a love that we extend that seeks to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is the mark of a Christian. Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples, that you love one another. And love is never at the expense of truth. I'm going to avoid going down a rabbit trail with that, but there's a lot going on in our culture today, even amongst some professing Christians, where under the banner of love, they are compromising on all kinds of areas of truth. Love is never at the expense of truth. Uh, probably 30 years ago, and maybe it has reoccurred, I don't know, but I do distinctly remember 30 years ago, there was a lot of tension within the Southern Baptist Convention over defining specifically inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, there was a, a pastor of a fairly large Baptist church within a couple of miles of where our church was meeting that told his congregation one Sunday morning, and I was told by people who were there, all of this discussion in our denomination about the inerrancy of the Bible, we need to just lay that stuff aside and love each other. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. It's, that's why he, it's always stated in the New Testament, speak the truth in love. And certainly, truth without love is hard, but love without truth is soft. And the two have to go hand in hand. And so, how do we stimulate one another to love and to good deeds? I mean, that's a legitimate question. I mean, if we're going to put this down at uh, uh, shoe leather level, how we walk this out, I think the way we spur someone else to love is by loving them. It's how we love them. And we demonstrate it not only by actions, but by our words. 
It's not an option for the Christian. It's an obligation. And something is amiss in our lives if in our relating to brothers and sisters in Christ in a local church, something is out of kilter if we do not desire to be loving one another in service and being arm in arm with the people of God. And even being in ministry full time, there are times when you just get up some days and you feel sluggish, maybe lethargic. Maybe you don't find your brothers and sisters all that loving. In fact, maybe they actually irritate you. I remember Chuck Swindoll one time said he often used to describe Christians gathering together as like porcupines gathering and huddling on a cold night. You know, there's, there's certain barbs and things that kind of come with that. <clears throat> but if we do slide into a don't-care attitude about provoking one another and spurring each other to love and good deeds, uh, perhaps we have mistakenly adopted a get versus a giving mentality. Uh, perhaps we just feel too busy to be involved with other people. Uh, perhaps our priorities are out of whack. Perhaps we've just become ungrateful, taking for granted what it means to be a part of the family of God, even taking for granted that I'm his child and it's a privilege that he's my heavenly father. Maybe we have become calloused against what the Bible teaches because the Bible clearly teaches that we are to be living and acting this way. We are told that we're to be using our spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. And love is frequently attached to good deeds because good deeds can be exercise absent of love. And of course, Paul made a very strong case for that in 1 Corinthians 13. Even if I give my body to be burned but don't have love, it doesn't amount to, to anything. In fact, I know uh, Adam brought a couple of messages in 1 Thessalonians here earlier this month, and uh, one of the things he says at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians is that he was uh, rejoicing and reflecting on the fact that they had demonstrated the work of faith and a labor of love was true of, of that congregation. So we should be looking for ways to engage in good deeds. As far as the role of good deeds in the Christian's life, I would refer you to your website and the message I brought last week because we looked at good deeds and how we all will give an account and be rewarded uh, before the Lord for the good deeds that we do. So I'm not going to unpack that anymore uh, this morning. But what is it that you find in your life that provokes you in a good way in the context of, the, of your church? Uh, sometimes uh, we're, we're stirred to be involved and to roll up our sleeves um, because we've been asked. Or perhaps because we see a certain need or opportunity that we could step in and fill. Something else that I think really stirs love and good deeds amongst God's people is affirming each other. You know, even as uh, and I appreciated the uh, uh, the tongue-in-cheek here with the misspeak in the first words of the song, 
you know, but when is the last time you've tapped any of these musicians on the shoulder and said, I appreciate the fact that you rehearsed and practiced and that you leave us on Sunday morning? And you can kind of take it for granted. I don't know if it's the same people here every week or not. I've only been here twice. But, you know, or when's the last time you said thank you to the person who was in the nursery with the little ones while you're in here? Uh, affirmation of what people are doing is a way that provokes people to continue to do these things. I suppose your church does this. Somebody has a new baby. The ladies take meals to the house. Or someone has lost a loved one and there's been a funeral and food is brought by. If you've ever been the recipient of that kind of gesture of love and care, that does that not spur you on to want to do the same for others? To, to have them experience what you experience? That people were that thoughtful? Uh, I know some of you have been praying for my wife on your Wednesday night prayer meetings. And she was, uh, side note, um, physical therapist discharged her officially this last week coming into the home and now she's going to start outpatient. She got in her car and drove for the first time in two months this last week. and She's graduated from the walker to the cane and we hope to lay the cane aside in the coming weeks. But <clears throat> people have brought us food. Um, Susan Braun is not here this morning because she spent the night with my wife because I'm still not leaving her alone overnight. So Susan's over in Gainesville spending the night with Priscilla so I can be here this morning. But anyway, um, so you might want to thank Susan for that when you, when you see her. But <clears throat> when I mentioned that we have this divine invitation, and yes, I believe it is that. The Father seeks people to worship Him, and the psalmist says, come, come, come. And we all get all kinds of invitations, don't we? Invitations to graduations, to weddings, to showers, etc., but, of course, when we get an invitation to that kind of an event, we're free to decline. We just send a regrets RSVP. That's not an option for the Christian. It's not just an invitation. It is an obligation. We are commanded to worship the Lord God. In Psalm 29, 1 and 2, we find these words, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, and ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. He deserves this. Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. And so again I say, to corporately worship the Lord is not just A privilege, it's an obligation. You know, the Israelites, as they worship corporately first in the tent of meeting and then in the tabernacle, uh, gathering with their fellow Jews at the temple on the Sabbath day was the main expression of their corporate worship. And it, it was a rhythm of life that was established at creation, and that God worked seven days and rested the seventh. And throughout the history of the Jews, and once they become dispersed and separated all over the Mediterranean world, that gave rise and the emergence of synagogues because they lived too far away to get to the temple in Jerusalem. So they established these synagogues where they came together with fellow believers every Sabbath day. 
And in fact, it's clear in the New Testament that Jesus and the apostles faithfully attended these corporate assemblies in the synagogue. Paul always started off at the synagogue as a stepping stone to the rest of the community. And we know Jesus was faithful in attending synagogue. After Jesus' resurrection and the birth of the Christian church, the Jewish Sabbath, as you probably know, on Saturday was replaced with the Lord's Day on Sunday. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, uh, a very uh, respected Calvinistic theologian. He made this statement, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. And so... I like the comparison uh, Martin Luther gave to what we're doing here today on the Lord's Day. Martin Luther observed that the Old Testament Sabbath commemorated the completion of creation and produced rest. The New Testament Lord's Day commemorates the completion of redemption and it produces worship. And we see little hints in the New Testament that moving the Sabbath day, the Lord's day to Sunday. Acts 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. So there's every pastor's justification for really preaching long. 1 Corinthians 16, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. And when John wrote the Revelation, he says early on in chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he was referring to worshiping on that Sunday. And if we can just dip into church history a little bit, once the last apostle dies, John, which is somewhere around A.D. 95, as we're moving into the second century, there's a little church manual that has been discovered by archaeologists called the, uh, the Didache. And one of the instructions it gives to people in the church, it says, on the Lord's Day, come together, break bread, and hold the Eucharist. Uh, there were these early church fathers that emerged in the second century. They were not equal to the apostles, but they were very prominent. One man named Ignatius wrote in AD 110, he states that Christians have come to a new hope, no longer living for the Sabbath, but for the Lord's Day. So it's clearly the practice that has continued on even down uh, to our day. So when I asked at the beginning, why are we here? Well, for one thing, Jesus, along with those texts I already mentioned, states in Matthew 18, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So when we are worshiping, in fact, could you flip over two chapters real quick? I, I want to show you this. This is kind of a fascinating insight to me. Over in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22, this is happening even as we're in here right now during this hour worshiping the Lord. Verse 22. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So as we come into the presence of the Lord and as we're worshiping, this actually is participating with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the angels, and the saints who have gone before us into heaven. This is happening simultaneously. And I realize that we don't see them or hear them audibly. But I was going to... Well, I had another observation that I was going to share with you that I seem to have misplaced here. But I don't think about that as often as probably I should or we should, that what is going on here is from the earthly realm that is simultaneously what's going on in the, in the heavenly realm. If you have had the opportunity to visit uh, some of the European countries, particularly um, well, England doesn't consider themselves Europe, but anyway, England or Belgium or the Netherlands, and I have visited the palaces in, in those particular places. You always know whether the king or queen is in residence because there is a flag that flies. You can see it at the palace in Amsterdam, the one in Brussels. And it means that the monarch is in residence when that flag is flying. And I came across one writer who made this parallel. He said, the Christian corporate gathering is where Jesus' flag is flying. It declares he is present and identifies himself with this gathering and places his stamp of authority upon them as his assembly. And so we gather here, and it's Jesus' flag that's flying here on the top of this building. In addition to extolling and honoring God when we come together for corporate worship. There's some other things that are achieved. There are other things that are experienced by us. For example, in Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, in your hearts to God. First Peter refers to believers as living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We don't tend to think in terms of that kind of sacrificial language, but everything we've done so far, the prayers offered, the scriptures read, the offering, the music, all of these are forms of sacrifices that we are making uh, to the Lord. Later in this book, in Hebrews 13, verse 15, he writes, Through him then, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So what what is going on here? Why we're here is this is... 
of supreme importance. This is vitally essential to a healthy Christian life. We're identifying with the body of Christ. We exercise an affirmation of the doctrines that we believe. We hear the Word of God taught by those who have been gifted with teaching. We find it stimulates our desire to be a, an obedient disciple. It fosters a, an atmosphere of accountability with each other. Uh, we're exposed to examples to follow as we watch one another's lives. Uh, the, the church provides the crucible in which we live our Christian life. And as I've already mentioned, it fosters love for one another. It promotes unity. I don't know if you all are familiar with Nine Marks Ministries, Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist. Um, <clears throat> our church is uh, very indebted to much of the literature that that ministry produces. But Mark Dever made this brief observation about the congregational life. He wrote, A congregation's united action is fostered by receiving the same teaching and having the same shaping experiences in public worship. In short, unity inside the congregation is easier to maintain when the congregation regularly gathers. Having said all of that, I mentioned that there's a costly negligence. And this is what he addresses in verse 25. Some of these professing believers were abandoning meeting together. Shall I read it again? Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. So some had fallen into this habit of not being faithful in attending the corporate worship services. Why had they done this? I think we get some insights uh, from the letter itself. We probably won't know all the reasons. But later on in this chapter 10, we know this, starting in verse 32, that there may have been a fear of persecution. Verse 32, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So if we know that they've experienced those kinds of things, some people begin to wear down and start to lose their boldness. And so it's possible some of them have stopped attending because of guilt by association and having encountered some of the things they already had encountered. Uh, there was undoubtedly pressure from family and friends to return to the temple to worship. Some may have been disillusioned that they thought by now Christ would have returned. Because in verse uh, uh, 25, he says, as you see the day drawing near, whenever you see the day, the day is referring to the day that Christ comes back. So he's reminding them to not lose sight of that hope that is before them. 
And perhaps it was something as simple as in our own day of just busyness, the busyness of life. It's interesting, another man, I won't give his name because you probably wouldn't remember it, and I wouldn't remember it if I didn't write it down. It's one of those ancient documents that it's not the Word of God, but it's been written by Christians. And somewhere between AD 90 and 150, they uncovered this parchment where this person was commenting on the fact that in Rome, there was a preoccupation with business affairs that accounted for the neglect of attending meetings in the church in Rome. So even back in the second century, they were dealing with such a problem. But why would someone who's professing to be a Christian be lackadaisical about attending corporate worship regularly? And by the way, because I don't know any of you well, I know the names of a handful of you, I'm not tilting at anybody, so this is I'm on safe ground. I'm being totally objective. I'm just thinking out loud like a pastor thinks, and I think as a Christian should think. Why forsake assembling together? Maybe it's the emphasis on individualism in our culture. I don't need anybody. I'll make my own path. Uh, John Wesley, remember the Wesley brothers, Charles and John, the famous Methodist. John Wesley once wrote, The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. There is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. Maybe our priorities are not where they should be. You know, some people don't go to church for corporate worship because it's raining. In fact, I was in one church. They referred to the people that showed up on the stormy day as the rain warriors. I mean, they came, you know, regardless of weather. Uh, perhaps others are not as faithful and regular in attending because, frankly, there's too many trips to the beach. Perhaps your hobbies, extracurricular activities. Uh, the younger pastor who succeeded me in our church in Gainesville, at his previous church, he had a man, whoever he was, he was there in that church six years, every year, I forget the season, because I'm not a hunter, but this guy was an avid hunter. And every year, at the same time, he would come up to the pastor after the service and say, well, I'll see you again in six weeks. He took off hunting and was going to be gone at least six weeks. Um, hunting is not wrong. I mean, in my view, it's not. I mean, it's, it's not wrong. And there's a lot of hobbies and things that are certainly legitimate and fine for people to engage in. But if it means you're going to be missing worshiping God corporately for weeks on end, What are we, let me speak to the parents for a moment here, what are we really teaching our children if they observe us making sure we get them to school or to piano lessons or to sports practice punctually but portray a lackadaisical attitude about getting to church or even skipping church altogether? Now, you don't know me, so I need to give this caveat. I'm not suggesting some kind of pharisaical legalism that's wrong for you to go to the beach for a couple of weeks. That's not my point. My point is, is that if we are very irregular in corporate worship, why is that? And it's not healthy. Worshiping with God's people should be consistent, 
it should be, as John MacArthur says, worship should be to the Christian what the mainspring is to a watch. The most important people in your life should be people sitting in this room right now. A day and the rhythm of life where we honor the Lord in a focused way. Of course, this was an Old Testament context. But listen to what Isaiah said, chastising the people because of their lack of lackadaisical attitude towards corporate worship. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken did you see the thrust of that comment that it's one day in the week in the rhythm of life where it's not our own ambitions and achievements and desires it's to focus on the Lord God and Paul makes it clear we're not to judge each other on how we honor a holy day or not but Nonetheless, I believe that the child of God is called to be faithful in corporate worship. One of the things that um, grieved me in the whole COVID mess, uh, I know two churches, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, I'm repeating myself, uh, I did say I'm going to be 75 in two weeks, but... um, There's still two churches in Gainesville that I know both the pastors. They've told me that, like a lot of churches, when they closed down and went to online, that once all those restrictions were lifted and they started worshiping again, they still have not recovered. They still have not gotten back to the kind of attendance they had before then. Our church did not experience that, but also we did not close down very long at all. Don't judge Don't judge us. Um... We happened to meet in a school where we had at least 200 empty seats because of the size of our church compared to the size of the auditorium. So it was very easy for us to really spread out. But the thing that grieved me is that I heard one lady say, you know, I actually got to where I just prefer staying in my jammies with my coffee on the sofa and watching church on TV. Maybe grieve is not the word. It irritated me. Um, do you realize the benefits that you're forfeiting by saying that, that you think worship can be reduced to staying in your pajamas with your coffee mug on the sofa watching the TV screen? I'm convinced if the priority of regular corporate worship is out of balance, so will the rest of one's life. And certainly I acknowledge that there are people who have jobs, first responders, that have schedules in the hospitals, in the fire department, the police. There may be jobs where you can't be as regular as you would like to be because of your occupation. But depending on the occupation, I have advised some people pray for a different job. 
it may be the Lord doesn't want you to stay in a job as a career where you have can never really go to church with your family. I don't think that's what the Lord would have you do. And if we are too busy for regular, consistent worship with God's people, then we're certainly busier than God intended us to be. You know, think about this. How important is worship? In the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses of the Bible, concerning worship and the tabernacle, there are seven chapters devoted to that. 243 verses of God's Word is giving instructions about the corporate worship. 243 verses. Only 31 verses on the creation of the world. I mean, where's the emphasis here? Well, I'll bring this message to a close by quoting two Johns. Uh, One is John Murray, who was a very well-known professor at Westminster Seminary for 35 years or so. In fact, is your church familiar with Project Hungry? Adam and I both serve on the board of Project Hungary, which translates the best theological works in English into the Hungarian language for the Hungarian church pastors. It was a ministry his dad started 20 years ago. And one of the books we chose to translate was John Murray's book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. It's a classic book. Well, John Murray made this observation. What or whom we worship determines our behavior. And then going back a couple hundred, three hundred years, John Calvin, the famous Reformed theologian, said, the first foundation of righteousness undoubtedly is the worship of God. Please pray with me. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, Creator, universe, the one who gives us life. Father, we pray that as we have opened up these verses today, I pray that what I have spoken would be submitted to the clear teaching of your word. I pray that the folks in this church today would be like the noble-minded Bereans who went away and searched the Scriptures to see if what they had been taught was so. And Lord, we do thank you for the gathered church, for how it enriches our lives. We thank you that we can be a part of the Bride of Christ and that we're being prepared to be presented to you one day, uh, spotless and pure. And Lord, I pray that uh, this church would continue to flourish even during these uh, weeks and months without a pastor, and I pray that you would help these believers to not just see this as a time of spinning their wheels until the next pastor comes along, but a time of understanding your will each and every day as they move forward in this search. So Lord, I once again ask for discernment and wisdom to the elders and to the search committee but actually for the congregation at large, that they would really sense when your hand is moving and bringing just the right under-shepherd for them. Lord, we thank you that ultimately it's not our job to build the church, 
we want to be in step with our Lord Jesus Christ who said himself, I will build my church. And in that we do take great hope and encouragement. And I ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. Amen.